you know, get get dirty in these different sort of discourses. Welding and philosophy. You know, like the perennial phrase or whatever is like CMS prepares you for jobs that don't exist yet, right? You're hearing clips from an event featuring MIT alumni. Oh man, let me give you totally opposite advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna swim my way out of this. Hosted by us at MIT's Comparative Media Studies and Writing Program. Each spring, the CMS side of CMSW catapults 10 more master's program graduates into the world. And each fall, we invite a bunch back to talk with perspectives. I'm Andrew Whitaker. As I picked this year's featured speakers, I saw what we always see of MIT grads. We prep them for great careers, but those careers often let them stay right here in Cambridge. Of the five grads we feature in this podcast, four stayed close. In fact, two helped start research groups in our department, and another two skipped to other parts of campus. One joined a PhD program a few buildings down, and another kicked off the Media Lab's new digital currency initiative. For the alums, talking to perspectives, it's an interesting line to walk. They have to take their lives, which are human and messy, and make them look like there's a single thread from where they were at MIT to where they are today. Listen to one of the panelists, Ilya Vodrashko of the class of 2006, on what it meant for MIT to have media studies. With this benefit of a perspective now, the CMS, CMS and Institute in general influences your life differently, you know, kind of the further you move away. You know, initially, you, you come out refreshed with all those different perspectives and, you know, you, you uncover things from, from, from angles that you never really even knew existed. This is one of the great things of this place is that it brings together people who otherwise probably would never come together because they sort of work in entirely different spheres. Um, and, it, you know, and the Institute's name opens doors and people sort of like, you know, oh, oh so you, might, you probably know math kind of, you know, you kind of, kind of look. But, you know, that, 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 that happens in the beginning. It doesn't really go away, but that's what's important in the beginning. Um, now that they have to structure kind of the work of groups of people, the way CMS is structured has proved to be a very good model for that as well. If you want the group to come up with new ideas, you have to bring people who are not, not only people who are good at the same thing that you are, right? So, but like people who are good at different things and, you know, get them together and start talking. And maybe, you know, if you have somebody who studies comic books and some, somebody who studies rocket science, maybe you, you know, some, something new will come up. Another thread that wove its way through the talk was, honestly for me in a communications position, something that can be hard to convey outside the humanities, namely what, in practice, the comparative in comparative media studies looks like. Outsiders sometimes get the sense it's an arbitrary mashup, when really it's about being open to good ideas, no matter what discipline they came from. An example, grad student Eric Staten wrote his master's thesis on self-driving cars. Here he is on getting to that topic after studying with CMS professor William Arricchio just a conversation I had with him, this sort of idea about media archaeology came up and he suggested, you know, why don't you take a look in this, like, he had, you know, sent me this website that has a lot of old magazine covers. Um, and so we, we were looking through, like, 1930s um, Modern Mechanics magazine and up comes this cover that says, like, light beams steer super racing car. And I would never have thought to go look at sort of this sort of popular mechanic style magazine from the 30s, and yet I discovered here's this, you know, vision of some kind of, you know, driverless vehicle, you know, imagined with technology that was sort of reasonable back then. And so that, I mean, that also sparked an interest for me in how was this technology looked at at like various times and caused me to do more research in that area and, you know, tilt the sort of introduction to my thesis in that direction. 
Um, so that's a sort of small example. I wouldn't have gone and done that unless I had had that conversation with William. Eric's experience makes it sound as though an epiphany is a requirement for the degree. Sure, that happens. But if you're a prospective student listening, be ready for a decade's worth of transformation to be squeezed into two years. For that, let's give a good bit of time to 2015 grad Chelsea Barabbas. I uh, spent four or five years living in South, between South America and East Africa, where I was doing a lot of kind of what you might consider um, international development work. Um, but the work I was doing was very deep, like kind of fundamentally shaped by kind of a movement that I think um, is heavily steeped in Silicon Valley culture. So I graduated from Stanford, started working for this startup international development company that does a lot with um, effective altruism. So this um, idea that there should be rigorous and systematic ways that you can think about approaching social change, uh, internet, like uh, social development, things like that, particularly abroad. Um, and a huge part of that work is centered around this idea of entrepreneurship and fostering entrepreneurship abroad. Couched in that is another narrative around kind of the idea of human capital development and the role that learning plays in, in basically fostering development. So teaching people how to be entrepreneurs will now lead to like, you know, kind of exponential impacts because this one person will now start a company that will, you know, scale to this, this growth, a highly scalable, you know, product or service that's going to improve people's lives and, um, and then you're going to scale impact that way. So I was very much a part of that work. A lot of what I was doing was actually working with social entrepreneurs in rural places to um, collaboratively kind of develop products and services uh, that fit kind of a social enterprise model. So, you know, uh, enabling people to have clean water that didn't have germs in them, increasing their crop yields, uh, literacy programs, things like this. Um, uh, so as I was doing that work, though, I started to realize kind of how uh, I, some of that narrative, some of the way we were thinking about that social change stuff and, and the, its relationship to technology was, was hard for me to believe, doing it in the field. Um, a lot of the things about, you know, especially uh, with the rise of mobile phones in places like Kenya, there's a huge emphasis in trying to, um, you know, build mobile apps to teach farmers better farming practices, teach better savings practices for microfinance and things like this. So I got really interested in kind of wanting to understand a lot more deeply, one, how we learn, and two, how that learning actually shapes our behavior and our kind of life prospects. So what opportunities open up for us when we do learn new things, things like that. So it's considered a, a PhD in cognitive psychology over at Harvard. Uh, that didn't seem to be really kind of the right path. One, it was PhD. Uh, also, though, very focused on the individual unit of a learner, right, and the cognitive processes underlying how we learn, which is fascinating and really helps to inform in some great critiques of some of the digital learning movement that, that are out there, but not quite, didn't have the system, systems level kind of thinking that I was looking for. The other program was uh, an edu in, in the School of Education um, at Stanford Digital, Digital. I forget what it's called, like DTS or something. I, I bet somebody here has applied to it as well. Like digital, yeah. What's it called? Digital? It's called Digital Technology Making or something. Yeah. Uh, and um, was a little wary of going back there because it also seemed like there wasn't much of a critical approach to kind of really understanding um, the what technology role is and, and kind of learning and connecting to kind of bigger issues of inequality. Uh, there's like another big kind of narrative around the role that school plays as like an equalizer in playing fields uh, that 
that I wasn't seeing a lot of what they were doing was really deeply entrenched in kind of like the existing school system and kind of laying technology on top of it. This program, I had no idea what it was going to be about, but everybody I talked to seemed to have really thoughtful questions to ask me about my work, even though they weren't people who necessarily had domain expertise in the things that I was interested in studying. Uh, so big fear I had was that there weren't a lot of people who could give me a lot of in-depth guidance in my domain. Uh, but at the same time, like it did seem like the types of conversations that people were having here were cutting across uh, like a lot of... like. Each of us, I think, in our cohort, for example, I feel like in our years were the years like when the, the discussion of the algorithm really started to blow up, right? And algorithmic bias and out control of algorithms and things like this. And it, it led to a lot of really fruitful conversations within our cohort that each of us could kind of pull from uh, and connect to our own work in really interesting ways. Uh, so, so yeah, I chose this program for that. Uh, when I got here, uh, you know, I think um, I, I, a lot of my work ended up shifting to um, not so much the how do we use technology to foster kind of better kind of learning models, whether it be within or without of school, so much as thinking about this movement to unbundle education, uh, break, break apart and decouple learning opportunities from institutions like universities and things like that. Um, and, and so instead of focusing on that, like this, uh, this movement to unbundle higher ed, I was really interested in kind of the, the question of, okay, if we have now a much broader set of learning opportunities that are starting to emerge that we could, as consumers, choose, uh, how do we make decisions about that? Uh, part of the way we're going to make decisions is knowing how well that that learning experience or that credential can translate into real opportunities in the labor market. So a lot of my work was looking at actually the ba digital badging, credentialing, uh, and, and issues of credentialing uh, uh, that... Uh, that must be answered in order to understand the value of alternative education models. Um, I specifically focused on the tech industry because that's an industry that has a lot of um, resources outside of a traditional uh, university kind of available to you if you want to learn how to code and develop a marketable skill set. Uh, and while I was doing that work, came across a set of practices that are kind of really shaping my work now, uh, which is called passive recruitment. So basically a process of scraping data that's publicly available on the internet uh, and forming dossiers um, of information about individuals without their, their knowledge uh, and selling those dossiers of information to recruiters who are looking for uh, people to recruit for jobs. Um, uh, but not So selling those things and offering basically recommendations on who would be a good employee. So a lot of my work here... Um, you know, it was really helpful talking to people like Eric, even though Eric was working on, like, you know, self-driving cars. Uh, I was starting to look at civil rights issues related to algorithmic recruitment uh, tools, uh, and we could get together and have really interesting conversations about the intersections of our work. Um, so, yeah, did that. Um, I was expecting to leave here when I, when I graduated. I was excited to get out of the cold. Um, but I... Um, uh, there, I don't know, I found a cool opportunity here that I started the, the week after I graduated, which was a new initiative actually based in the Media Lab called the Digital Currency Initiative. Um, and I, just in the interest of time, I won't necessarily explain why I think that connects to the work I'm doing now. But you get two minutes. Okay, cool. So, um, so I will then. Um, so, you know, as I was, um, as I was looking at some of the, one of the things that really kind of, um, 
concerned me when I started looking at these passive recruitment practices was that they mirrored and exacerbated a lot of the issues we've seen kind of over the last several decades uh, related to like credit reporting companies. So these are also companies who are in the business of harvesting your data and selling it to other people uh, to inform their decisions about you and, and deny or offer you opportunities. Um, as information has gotten more and more digital, credit reporting regulation has gotten more and more difficult to implement effectively. And I think now the companies who are doing this passive recruitment stuff, their behaviors and all intents and purposes look exactly like what credit reporting agencies do. But it's it basically all of the legal paradigms we had in place to basically protect consumers against erroneous data being collected and used against them. Um, uh, uh, faulty algorithms used to calculate scores about you, uh, things like the, uh, you know, um, double positives, people having the same name, things like that. Um, there was no due process kind of thing put into place for consumers to be able to deal with that in the digital world. Um, and the problems are magnified in all these like crazy ways now because we live like basically in a digital world where like we as consumers have very little control over our data and very little, um, we don't have the infrastructure kind of available to us to be able to extract value or insights from it. So, you know, like the perennial phrase or whatever is like CMS prepares you for jobs that don't exist yet, right? We kept throwing that around somewhat bitterly as we got closer and closer to May 2015. But, uh, and, and most of us didn't know what we were doing when we graduated. And I'm just now, as we've been talking, thinking about what everybody's doing now. And I would say most people have jobs now that didn't exist when we were in grad school like five months ago. Chelsea's right. That line, preparing students for jobs that don't yet exist, is a quote from one of our program's first backers. And on its face, it's kind of a scary thing to promise perspectives. But boy, look at what some of our folks have gone on to do that didn't exist when they started. One worked for MakerBot, the 3D printing company, as a project manager. We have a senior person at Etsy, someone at the San Francisco Mayor's Office of Civic Innovation, at Google and Apple and Twitter and Yahoo. And we always brag about the third of our grads that go into academia passing along the comparative approach to another generation. And all that comes from working your butt off at MIT for two years for moments like this. Here's Margaret Weigel, one of the earliest CMS grads. I sort of went in and audited one of the first courses at CMS, and it had been so long since I'd been in any kind of academic setting. And we were reading Walter Benjamin, and it was really hard for me. And I remember I was going away with a friend for the weekend, and I said, no, you can't bother me. I have to read this. And she had two kids, and I'm like, I can't take this. And I went into a closet, and I sat down with Benjamin, and I'm like reading it line by line. But in doing so, it sort of blew my mind, and it opened up so Something, just like a, a broader understanding of what was possible. It's like sometimes you read these things and your world starts falling into place. You're like, oh, I understand this now. This is the coolest thing ever. Like the understanding is just this high. I'd like to thank Margaret and the others. She works in digital education. 2007's Dan Roy, the only panelist you didn't hear, develops games for learning. Ilya Vadrashko, 06, works in data-driven consumer research. Eric Staten, 2015, is a PhD candidate in MIT's program in History, Anthropology, Science, Technology, and Society. And Chelsea Barabbas, also 2015, is the newly minted advisor to the MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative. And thanks finally to current grad student Gordon Mangum for producing the panel's audio. You can learn more about our program and hear more podcasts. Just visit cmsw.mit.edu.